Hi, I'm Andy Kindler, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Are you enjoying it? I certainly hope so. I'm P.F. This is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Daniel Kino explains the differences between his growing up in the Ukraine and his countryman, Yakov Smirnov. Maybe it was in the 70s when he was coming out, but by the time I, I became aware of comedians and subversive art in general, the Soviet Union was already sort of falling apart, like late 80s, early 90s. They didn't have as tight of a, of a hold on society as it used to. We'll hear more from Daniel in just a bit. Why are Flock of Seagulls contemporaries such jerks to that group? But first, as always, fake news. And now, fake news with me. Burger King has concocted yet another way to have it your way, a gay pride burger. The proud Whopper, as it's called, comes wrapped in a rainbow-colored wrapper with this inscription, we are all the same inside. It will be sold at one Burger King restaurant on San Francisco's Market Street that was at the heart of the route for last weekend's 44th annual San Francisco Pride Celebration and Parade. The controversial slogan for the burger is, put this meat in your mouth. Beyonce has caught up to her nickname, Queen Bee, and beat Oprah Winfrey to become 2014's most powerful celebrity. The Run the World singer topped Forbes' Celebrity 100 list, which Winfrey reigned over last year. Further proof, conservatives will likely argue that there is no more racism anymore and we can all go home. Except that there's this. And Hillary Clinton, I'm not surprised. This is her bread and butter. This is how she's going to try to win the White House. This is what she's going to go to. She needs the single ladies vote. I call them the, the Beyonce voters, the single ladies. Obama won <laughs> oh single gosh. ladies by 76% last time, and they made up about a quarter of the electorate. Yep, it's true. Uh, you know, Jesse Waters there on Fox News. Facebook can't seem to bring itself to apologize for performing psychological experiments on its users. In her first public statement on the matter, Facebook Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg said that the outrage over the company's controversial study was all a big misunderstanding. Internet users were angry earlier this week when Facebook revealed that it intentionally made a subset of its users less happy during a week in 2012. As part of the study, Facebook changed the mix of the news feed of almost 690,000 users. Some people were shown more positive posts, while others were shown more negative posts. But when you think about it, isn't every Facebook post a negative post? Kelsey Grammer, actor, producer, Twitter grammarian. Grammer's verified Twitter account started on June 30th with the tweet, It has come to my attention that the fine people of at Twitter, you can hear this voice in your head, right? Even though I'm doing a rubbish impression. Uh, people of at Twitter have an egregious grammar problem. I'm here to help. Pound Kelsey Grammer Grammer. Since then, the Fraser star has been true to his mission, correcting tweets. When one fan tweeted, The movie Down Periscope with Kelsey Grammer is one of my favorite movies. It's a movie I can watch over and over again. Deal with it. Grammer responded with, I'm honored you think so, but I believe it should be it's with an apostrophe. Pound Kelsey Grammer Grammer. The tweeter replied to Grammer saying, Down Periscope should be Police Academy. And the Supreme Court this week ruled that craft chain Hobby Lobby does not have to offer certain forms of birth control that it claims violates its religious beliefs. Progressive groups slammed the decision, as well as Hobby Lobby itself. Supporters point out, accurately, that Hobby Lobby pays its full-time workers an average of $14 per hour, uh, gives every employee Sundays off, and covers 16 of the 20 forms of contraception offered by insurers. Which is kind of like your neighbor saying, here, borrow my trimmer, let me clear your driveway with my snowblower, and let my dog take a big dump in your yard that I have no plans of cleaning up. 
And that's been fake news with me. Just finished reading uh, that great book I was telling you about last week, Mad World and Oral History of New Wave Artists and Songs That Define the 1980s by Lori Majewski and Jonathan Berkstein. Um, we're going to have uh, Jonathan on the show in a couple of weeks. I'm interviewing him next week, but we probably won't get to running it until the uh, week after Bunbury, which is like the July 12th, somewhere in there. So look for that in uh, mid to late July, um, and we'll discuss the book with him and uh, some of my concerns. With it. Although I had very few problems with this book, except for two, and they're both the same thing. Um, and I alluded to this in the intro. Uh, what do Flock of Seagulls contemporaries have against Mike Score and his band? I don't get it. Uh, Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears, uh, kind of defending their record, and not really a record you need to defend. Uh, two great albums, a really good album, uh, Grammy Awards, hit singles. Okay, so um, but he's talking about the music of the '80s and, and feels his place to defend it. And he says uh, the majority of the stuff we listened to sucked. What you take with you is really the good stuff. But there was a ton of crap in the '80s. For every one of us, there was a flock of seagulls. Wait, what? And and uh, Mr. Bergstein, uh, thankfully, gives Mike Score a chance to rebut this comment at the bottom of the page here, and, and Score just says, well, he's probably jealous, which is kind of accurate. Although, here's the thing. If, you know, tears for fears, you know, pound for pound, okay, a better group than a flock of seagulls. But flock of seagulls, really, really underrated group, I think people should know. Everybody knows I ran, and, but for some reason, they get slammed for having a couple of hit singles, and nobody else seems to get that kind of treatment, uh, like, let's say, The Fix, who I also love, by the way, had a great new album out last year. Those guys had five top 40 singles, one top 10 hit in America. Nobody slams them, nor should they. Uh, take a group Stray Cats. We all love Stray Cats. Two, uh, three top 10 singles, uh, one more top 40 single. Nobody slams those guys. And again, everybody loves Brian Setzer, rightly so. Had a nice career after Stray Cats doing that big band thing. And then you got groups that are revered in this book, like, and, and again, rightfully so, Human League, ABC, two great groups from Sheffield that I highly recommend. But you look at uh, Human League and ABC's career in the chart in this country, Human League, two number ones, an additional top 10, three other top 40 hits, ABC, two top 10s, and three other top 40 hits. And then you look at Flock of Seagulls, Flock of Seagulls had a top 10 hit with Iran, they also got into the top 40 with Space Age Love Song and Wishing. You know, not a dissimilar record. I don't think they're deserving of uh, people hammering on them, like one Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. And uh, Mr. Kerr has this to say, and again, he's defending the 80s uh, as well, and he says, For a long period, the 80s were much maligned. Whenever anyone talked about the 80s, it was usually for a crappy pop show. You get a two in the morning. Oh, this is the 80s in the lead Bananarama, who, by the way, also unfairly slammed by Mr. Kerr. Uh, Annabella Lewen, earlier in the book, uh, her off of Bow Wow Wow, has some lovely things to say about Bananarama. Uh, it'll be Doctor and the Medics who had a hit uh, in Britain. Uh, they, I think they were a one-hit wonder. And it'll be a flock of seagulls. What the hell? Did Mike Score do something to piss these people off? I don't get it. So anyway, I think this is kind of silly because, first of all, we should all be in this together because uh, while I, you know, uh, Mr. Kerr 
unfairly uh, you know, dumps all over Bananarama and, and even Doctor and the Medics and, and a flock of seagulls. You know, I, I think he is right in that we should be defending the 80s, especially the good parts of the 80s, because people get confused. First of all, when I say I like 80s music, they think I like crappy 80s music. They don't realize that I like good 80s music, and then, of course, they don't really realize what good is. But anyway, um, in defense of a flock of seagulls uh, and, and their uh, track record here, I would say uh, just go to the Wikipedia page and look at their singles. This would be the easiest way to do it. Uh, you can also go to Freegal, which is that uh, free site that uh, is connected with your local public library, hopefully. They're in Freegal. You can download all their hits. And, oh, you mean I can download two songs, PF? No, you can download about a dozen really good tracks, okay? That would include uh, It's Not Me Talking, Telecommunication, uh, Space Age Love Song. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> I almost forgot. What does Flock of Seagulls have that the uh, Human League, the Fix, ABC, Simple Minds, uh, and Tears for Fears do not have? A Grammy! Hey, how about that? Yes, they had an instrumental track on their debut album. The song was called DNA, and ESPN used to use it back in the day to uh, run their baseball highlights. It was really cool. And um, I'm not going to play that. I'll let you find that one for yourself. But they won a Grammy for that as Best Instrumental in 1982. So they have a Grammy, and uh, Mr. Kurt Smith and Mr. Jim Kerr do not. All right. So anyway, go to Wikipedia's Flock of Seagulls page, then click on the Flock of Seagulls, dis Flock of Seagulls discography, and then go from there. And then I would say go to Freegal and uh, grab yourself some of these tracks. It's fine. Mr. Score will get paid, as will the rest of the band. And I'm going to leave you with um, a fairly underrated tune. I would say most uh, Flock of Seagulls aficionados uh, would say that Space Age Love Song or Wishing are their best tracks. And I would, I would agree with that as well. It would be hard to pick between those two. I kind of lean toward Wishing. But I'm going to play you another one of my favorite tracks of theirs. It was a single from the album List which is the album that Wishing comes off of, got to 38 in the UK, it got to 22 in Ireland, got to 43 in New Zealand. How this was not a bigger hit, I have no idea. The song is called Transfer Affection, and uh, we'll play out on that as we head toward the big interview.
Hey folks, remember this? Dear Joey, getting my hair done. Be back at 3.30. Please go to Lawson's and pick up bread, lunch meat, potato salad, and pop. And if you want... Or this? We have fresh ideas at Red Barn, like the salad bar for you. This is the third time my husband went back to the salad bar. Or how about this? Well, Home Shirts has all of your vintage apparel needs, recalling all the great brands and restaurants of yesteryear, particularly from the cities of Cincinnati, Cleveland, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and St. Louis, but also from brands around the country. Just head to homeshirts.com and check out all of our vintage apparel needs, including restaurants, stores, great sports teams. Check it out, and when you order specifically from Home Shirts Cleveland, we make a couple of bucks, and we really appreciate it. Merry-go-round. Unique fashions for guys and gals. Daniel Kino is a stand-up comedian who grew up in the Ukraine before and after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He's now a successful stand-up comedian in America, and he talked to us from his home in Los Angeles. There are a couple of times where we get that little Skype click in it, but it goes away. So otherwise, enjoy our interview with Daniel Kino. Joining us on PS Tape Recorder, it's Daniel Kinno. Daniel, how you doing? Hey, buddy, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good, man. So, um, gosh, you have an interesting backstory. Uh, I was reading. Uh, you're originally from, uh, well, I guess at the time was the Soviet Union, but now is Belarus. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Ukraine, and then I grew up in Russia and Belarus, and sort of all over Eastern Europe. Okay. Yeah, I'm not a spy. I promise. <laughs> okay. So, and now, how, how long did you live? You're from uh, Minsk originally, I guess, which is the the, the biggest city, um, the capital. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent there the most time. Uh, I was there from about eleven to fifteen. Okay. And um, but where were you born then? Uh, I was born in Ukraine. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, okay. My, fa- my 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 family had a business, and my parents had a business, and they they traveled a lot, so oh, I was I was sort okay. of all over the place. Oh, okay, okay. So, um. So, uh, growing up, um, did did you get exposed to a lot of comedy, or how did your interest in comedy take root? Well, growing up, I was exposed to a lot of um, Russian comedy, Okay, not a lot of American comedy. I didn't hear an American comedy album until I was 15 years old, which is when I moved to America. Okay. And um, and I, that album was George Carlin's Back in Town, ah. which probably changed my life. Not probably, definitely changed my life. Okay. And and where were you living at that point when you heard that? Uh, at that point, I was living in Columbus, Ohio. That's where we oh, okay. immigrated to. Oh, it's right up the road from where I am here. Yeah. Um, and um, that was sort of my first exposure to American culture. I, I, I think I, I was very lucky that we lived in a city that didn't really have a large Russian population, and I was sort of able to acclimate into the, you know into society easily. You end up in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, you're a, a teenager at that point. And um, mm-hmm. so, uh, and, and what year is this roughly? Because this, this is after the fall this of the wall, like it. Yeah, this is ninety five, ninety six. Oh, no, so not too far after, though. Okay. No. Okay. And uh, why the move to Columbus? Um, you know, I don't really know how it worked out. That was just sort of where where we had friends, and it just kind of you know when when you're that age, you don't know these questions, and then. Once you're there, you're sort of accepted for what it is. 
Okay. Um, I never really asked my parents why not L.A. Or, or New York, but in retrospect, I'm very happy that it was. Well, that's cool. And um, so did, did your uh, in, interest in comedy continue there? Or, like, were you a funny kid in school, or was it a way to make friends, uh, you know, being from far away? No, at that point, at that point, I had kept my comedy ambitions to myself because I, I didn't know the language yet. Oh, okay. I didn't really know the lay of the land. So, you know, I sort of began to grow those ambitions in high school. And um, I really didn't do anything until the summer between uh, high school and college. Okay. And uh, what, what got your interest going then? Um, then I was in L.A. for a few months before going to school in Santa Barbara. And um, I, I did a few open mics. Oh, okay. And I, I sort of, like, you know, worked up enough. Um, enough balls to get up and try it. And then once I tried it, it was sort of over, you know. I got the, I got the bug. Aha. Uh-huh. So what was, your, what, were, what was your first set like? What kind of things did you talk about? My first set was very... I had a very thick Russian accent when I started. And most of my set was about being from Russia, about being an immigrant, about, you know, just like the silly little on the surface things that you run into being an immigrant. You know, you have to know I was 18 at the time, and I really didn't know anything about the world or, you know, comedy. So I was just talking about things that are really were right in front of my face. So when you were growing up, I guess you were still uh, in... The Soviet Union was still in existence. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, Yakov Smirnov famously uh, has been... And he's, he's been recently interviewed again, of course, because of what's going on in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, reminding folks about where he came from and that, I guess, they, the, the, the comedy in the Soviet Union was very restricted and you had to submit things to the Ministry of Jokes and it was a lot of, like, just very generic comedy. Was that the case for you growing up when you watched Russian comedy or Soviet comedy? You know, I... I uh, no no. The short answer is no. I okay. Maybe it was maybe it was in the seventies. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know when he was coming out. But by the time I I became aware of comedians and subversive art in general, um, the Soviet Union was already sort of falling apart, like late eighties. Ah, uh, okay. Early nineties. It didn't have as tight of a of a hold on society as it used to. So oh, okay. I got to see a lot of really cool, interesting, different, subversive comedians. Oh, okay. Um, you know, people making fun of the government. People, you know, in a very clever, okay, um, fashion. So I I kind of got inspired early on. Like I, I learned the power of good comedy very early on. Oh, that's really cool. Okay, yeah, because he because he left, of course. Yeah, you're like in the late seventies, so I guess that's that's twenty years, almost. Yeah, uh, yeah. after. Okay, and, and like, and and uh, and I was, and then once I moved to America, and then once I started doing comedy, I, I became very aware of Jakob Smirnov, and that was a thing that I didn't want. I didn't want to be yeah. identified as like this one. So um, I worked very hard. Once I decided to really start doing comedy, I yeah. Um, I worked really hard at getting rid of my accent and yeah. and talking about stuff that's relatable to everybody and not just being the Russian sure. meat. Yeah, which which he had to do forcibly because, of course, when the Berlin Wall fell, he he started concentrating more on like relationships and like you're saying, you know, uh, things that everybody can relate to. I mean, that, that guy gets a bad rap. But he's a great joke writer. I agree. I agree, and, and yeah. he's a brilliant businessman. And you know, I think you don't get to be that successful without you know, having real talent and a real knack for how to do it. He's a, 
you know, he's a, he's a he's a very very funny, very smart guy. Yeah. So you go to college in California. What would you, what did you plan to uh, major in? Uh, I went to college at CSB, but I uh, dropped out before uh, it was time to declare a major. Oh, okay. Cause, cause you were... Because at that point, I had already started doing comedy, and once I started doing comedy, I had very little interest in anything else. Uh-huh. It was very hard for me to, to go to school and, and care about what you know the, the subjects or even the hanging out and parties or girls. You know, at that point, you, you, I, I was just immersed in comedy. I couldn't wait to. I was I'm at UCSB, and I couldn't wait to get out so I can get get in the car, drive to LA, and do an open mic, and and then I would drive up, and then go to class the next, and I would repeat it over and over again, and yeah. finally just got to the point where I, I, you know, I was just going to school because of my parents, and I sort of asked them if I could just you know try this full time, and if it doesn't work out, uh, I'll go back to school. And how did they take and, that? And uh, that conversation went okay because they, they always knew I had these ambitions and they, and, and they knew we made a deal that I, I would try it for four years, which is the, you know, exactly amount of years I would have spent in college. And if it didn't work out, I could go back. And um, four years later, I was working as a comedian. So Cool. So um, how many sets a week were you doing while you were in college? Say that again? How many sets on average were you doing, were you doing in college, you know? Well, it, it started slowly, but by the time I left, I was doing sets almost every night in L.A., and I was running a room in Santa Barbara. I started a room okay. so, I, so I could, you know, get my space on and meet comedians. And... Okay. Well, that's uh, very entrepreneurial of you. Yeah, right? Yeah. It didn't really it didn't really make any money, but I got to meet a lot of comedians, and I got to sort of learn. And, you know, oh, yeah. comedy is unlike anything else because you can't, you can teach somebody how to be a doctor. You can you, you can tell them all the all the stuff, and then they they'll have the skills necessary to be a doctor. But with comedy, you can, there's there's nothing you can tell someone that'll make them understand how comedy works. You, they have to go up and do it. That's true. Yeah, there's it's one of those things. Literally that... zero shortcut. So you just have to go out there and spend eight years, you know, figuring it out before you can even begin to understand how it works. That's true. That's like with with any artistic pursuit, but yeah, probably even more so with comedy because uh, it's it's such a subjective thing. You know, if you, you if you can play your guitar and play it better and better, that's one thing. But you know, you, maybe you will be get get better at writing jokes, but maybe you won't. Yeah, and especially it also depends on what kind of comedy you want to do. Like, you know, all my heroes were always people that are you know that gave their opinion on on subjects that that matter to them. Like, I, I, I like joke writers like Stephen Wright and, and Mitch Hedberg are brilliant, brilliant performers and writers, but I, I, like I, I never wanted, like, that never hit me as hard as, like, George Carlin did. Right. Or, you know, or Richard Pryor. So, what kind of things do you talk about on stage these days? Is it, like, stuff that happens to you in your life? Is it politics? Or is it a mix of stuff? You know, I... No, no more politics. Uh, these days, I sort of try to stay, um, you know, very broad in terms of topics, and, and I really try to try to uh, try to get as personal as possible, you know. So I I went through a breakup recently that sort of was one a one of a kind that I had before, and I learned a lot from it, and I sort of brought that all all up on stage. Whereas before. Ten years ago, I would think, oh, I'm going through a breakup. I got a, you know, I got a, 
uh, get it together because I got to yeah. get set and then I got to talk about drinking and partying or whatever because I have to. And now it's just I sort of learn how to wear it on my sleeve and use it towards my advantage. Aha. Uh-huh. So it, it kind of helped you get through uh, the breakup in a way then too. Yeah, maybe in a way it did. Maybe in a way it did. Like making sense of everything that happened in a way that a, a crowd full of strangers can relate to it certainly helps the healing process. Yeah, yeah, because I guess, you know, you hear where people are laughing at it, and you think, oh, okay, well, then, then I'm not alone. Some the people... Yeah, yeah, and then, then you go, oh, my God, I, I'm not crazy. She, she's wrong. You guys do the same thing. <laughs> You're on my side. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, that, I mean, I, I try not to use use my uh, time in front, of, uh, in front of the audience as therapy for me, but, like, well, yeah. if it's enjoyable to them, then why not? Well, sure, yeah, and a lot of times, you know, people can... Uh, it's, it's easier to laugh at others' misfortune than, than worrying about your own. Right, right. Yeah. And I also, like, you know, as um, I started at a young age, which which was good because it gave me a heads up in terms of learning how to do comedy and discovering myself on stage, but I really didn't have anything to say until maybe, you know, until I got older. Yeah. I, you know, my, my, my opinions weren't really... Just no one wanted to hear a 21-year-old talk about politics or marriage or relationships. Yeah. Well, you that- don't know anything yet. That's and a lot. A lot of young guys um, have that 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 issue, I guess. And uh, the comedians I talk to who are older say, you know, when I was twenty one, you know, people just wanted to hear about drinking and partying because that's all I knew about and that's all I felt comfortable talking about. But then, right. yeah, as you have life experiences and you get older, then it, it's 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 much more, you know it's much more real uh, realistic feel to it. Yes, like I used to. I think you know a, a way to describe the difference, even in, in the same topic, is you talk about how how funny it is. When, when you do some, like, let's say, sex, I used to think, oh, it's funny when you do this during sex. And now it's funnier to me is how you feel, like, what, what, when someone does that, how that makes you feel during sex. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A different perspective. Like, getting a lot more vulnerable. Like, I remember when I started being, like, really honest on stage and sharing, you know, my thoughts during a, a, a thing, a wedding or whatever, and, like, really got honest. That's when I started having fun. Because then I realized, oh no, no, no! Like I can be myself and still have you like me and get laughs. I have to just play character you want me to play. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, what would you ultimately like to do w- with your comedy? Uh, can you doing stand up and playing bigger and bigger uh, halls like like Carlin did, and and your heroes like that? Or um, yes, yes, I would uh, like to sort of cultivate, you know, um, a bigger following and and play bigger rooms. Uh, I also started writing, so um, I'm enjoying that as well. But stand-up was, was the, you know, the thing that I've wanted, you know, I've wanted to do since I was little. So stand-up will be a part of my life, and, and I don't know what form it'll be. I don't know if I'm going to get to the, you know, George Carlin stage. I don't know. But it, it, that's, you know, it doesn't matter. As long as I get to go off and talk about whatever I want to talk about people find it it's you know I'll always be lucky just to have that so what kind of things you've been writing is it the stu- stuff for TV or stuff for other comedians or uh, just this TV um, doing a lot of punch up on stuff and then okay um, TV movie stuff you know I, I just started that recently so okay. I'm curious to see where that goes okay. you know stand up is a great training ground for other jobs and show business as you know, you write, you direct, you perform. You're responsible for all of it. You learn how to do all of it, and um, you know. So, so once you 
once you start applying those skills uh, other you know elsewhere, you you sort of quickly realize like how how much stand up prepared for it. Yeah, you and, know? and and do you find though that um, when you're that writing now allows you like a different vehicle for some stuff that might not have worked as well on stage. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> um, it's. I mean, it's a little different, but obviously, all the writing I do is comedy, and you know, the analogy I like to use is, you know, if you go to see a movie, like a funny movie, right? Like the best movie, the best comedy movie of. of of all time, whatever yours is, it, it's you'll probably laugh out loud ten, fifteen times in the yep. movie theater, and that's that's a comedy hit when everybody laughs out loud ten, fifteen times. Even let's say twenty, being generous, yeah, that's like a giant movie. And if you go see a comedian and you only laugh twenty times in the in the hour he's on stage, you would win your money back. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, like well, we we write these things that are an hour long that that people laugh at every you know twice a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And so, 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 so once you sort of take that, you know, scale of joke writing elsewhere, you kind of realize, oh, I can, you know, this is not, I know how to do this. I know how to make this funny. But then there's other stuff you have to learn. You know, it can't just be from jokes. So it's a lot more interesting in that regard, like how to tell a story without just the jokes. And so oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's all a learning process. It is, yeah. And, uh, so and so, how long have you been at this? Then you've it's uh, let me calculate like what fifteen years or so. I have been at it for about fifteen years or so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I would say ten. Like really, when I decided that to take it seriously, maybe ten, twelve. But altogether, fifteen since I first got up. Jesus Christ, that's a long time. <laughs> but uh, it sounds like it's going well for you. Um, yeah. Well, you know, when I started, it's going to take you ten years to figure it out, and I thought that's yeah. impossible. And there's no way. And they were right. Like, the first eight, ten years in comedy, you should just be prepared to throw it away. Not throw it away, but you know what I mean. Like, those are your college, grad school years. Yeah. And expect, you know, you're going to have to learn different things at different, you know, the first thing you got to learn is how to be in front of an audience. The next thing you have to do is learn how to write, uh, you know, consistent jokes and economize your words. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a... It's a distinct process. Yeah, that I've, you have done, to go through. I've done so many different gigs at this point. I've done shows in college cafeterias at 11 a.m. I've done huge theaters. I've done um, military bases in Afghanistan for, right. you know, 10 Navy SEALs sitting there in the mountains listening to your act. I've, you know, I've, I've done so many different venues. So, like, at this point, all of it, maybe while you're in it, you don't realize that that's what's happening, but looking back at it, you realize, like, all of that was just training ground. So you think that... You know, if, yeah, do you think that, yeah, that variety of audiences, the military, the college students, the clubs, the theaters, do you think that having that nice mix uh, was helpful, or was it just a matter of just doing it, just being on stage, period, is what really advanced your, your voice? Uh, both, both. I think, I think they're sort of interconnected. I think having, having you know, performed for all sorts of different crowds... Um, is is a good is, you know is good training, but also just the stage time alone is great too. It's sort of um, the, 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 they're interchangeable, I think. 
Cool. Well, all right, man. Um, we'll have a good time up there in Minneapolis, and uh, hopefully, we'll get you down here. In I'm well. Sorry, sorry. Like I don't know if I don't know if you wanted to be more funny. Oh I no, no. Like, I kind of a- answered all your questions in a very serious manner. No, that's no, that's fine. It, 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 either way, whatever, whatever works. You have, to, you have a, a fascinating backstory, and uh, you know, and, and had an interesting career so far. So, um, so that, that was. Yeah, uh, I'll get you, you, you. I feel like I should do a joke. I watch a lot of porn. I watch so much porn. One time, a porn star recognized me. <laughs> See? There you go. Jokes. <laughs> boom, boom. There you go. And have another one you like to to do? Uh. Yeah, my doctor's on Twitter. That's not how you want to get bad news. Hey, at Daniel Kino, give me a call. Hashtag blood work not good. <laughs> okay. All right. There's no, there's plenty. All of right. I feel I feel good about those two. There is internet. I'm, t- oh, I'm taking up the whole internet. I'm being told by producer Lizzie, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to go now. <laughs> but um, good luck up in Minneapolis, Daniel, and hope we'll see you down here in Cincinnati sometime soon. It's uh, just right down the road from your uh, adopted hometown, of course. And uh, uh, yep. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Daniel Kino for being on the show. You can go to Daniel Kino's website, but you won't find anything there. It's Daniel, standard spelling, K-I-N-N-O.com. It's still under construction. Looks like it's going to be one of those Tumblr situations. Um, so you can just keep checking back for that. You can also like him on your face page there. He has a, a page there, and that will hopefully keep you up to date on where you can see him. Or just, you know, uh, keep an eye on who's coming to your local comedy club. You can see Daniel coming. You can go check him out, okay? All right. So let me see. Uh, let's go through the uh, – before I get to the other business, let me go through the uh, credits real quick. Of course, the uh, logo designed by uh, Dan Coble. Uh, Dan and uh, Logan's podcast, Magic Potion, can be found in iTunes. Original music for PS Tape Recorder composed and performed by John Veropoulos and Doug O'Connor with a little help from me. Let me see. Like me, uh, uh, like the, like you can like me on Twitter or Facebook, whatever you want to do. But, um, like the podcast on Facebook, more importantly, follow me on Twitter at PF66. And let me see, next week we are going to be at Bunbury, uh, the music festival here in Cincinnati. Not exactly sure how we're going to do this. We may drop like three shows across the weekend that'll be a half hour long. So uh, a lot of stuff for you guys to scoop up on. Mostly we'll be reviewing uh, each day of the uh, of the festival and hopefully talking to some bands as well. We're still trying to get that coordinated and we're trying to find a place where we can set up uh, just briefly to get this accomplished. So uh, we will keep you posted on that. Um, and in fact, I'll try to keep you posted on Facebook as to how we're coming along with that as well. Okay, so uh, to head out, I changed my mind. I'm going to play that Grammy-winning song by Flock of Seagulls. Again, this is the instrumental DNA from their fine debut album. Yes, I, it's not quite as good as The Hurting by Tears for Fears. I, I'll give you that. It's It's not even as good as songs from the big chair but boy for a debut album pretty darn good a lot of good tracks on it including this one like i said they used to play under the baseball highlights back there in the summer of uh, 1982 on espn on sports center and uh this is dna flock of seagulls so long and thanks for listening (laughs) 